All Scripture is inspired by God. Do you believe that? All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. Do you believe that? Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's what we are told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. That is every bit of the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, the letters, the Gospels, the books of prophecy, the books of narrative, uh, the books of poetry. Every bit of it. It's all profitable. It's all needed. A few verses later in 2 Timothy, we are told down in chapter 4, verse 2, that the word, the preaching the word, that is profitable for all of these things. Preaching that word includes reproving, it includes rebuking, and it includes exhorting. Now there's a careful balance there that is important in preaching. Uh, I like what Brother Stan here says. The, the purpose of the preacher is to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. And I think it's a combination of that, and we need to remember that. And the Word of God will do that if we will allow it to. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2 says to do all of that, whether it is reproving, whether it's rebuking, whether it's exhorting, to do it with great patience and instruction. That's a challenge sometimes. I say all this up front today to say that I hope that what I say today is received in love. I hope you all know how much I love you and that you know that I do feel loved. I do feel encouraged. Please don't come away from today thinking that I feel unloved, that I feel not encouraged. But we have an issue in this congregation that needs to be addressed. And it's not just in this congregation. I don't want you to think I'm just picking on this location here. It's something that I see as a widespread problem among Christians. But it's, it pops up in this congregation too in our interactions with each other. It needs more exposure. It needs more instruction. It needs more correction. Far too widespread. Happening too much. Not accusing the majority of you of committing what we're talking about today. But some of us fall prey to this. It's been addressed here in the pulpit before by multiple preachers. But I think it needs to continue to be addressed. And the problem specifically that we're going to talking about today is how we go about voicing our concerns or our disagreements or our matters of offense with each other in the body of Christ. And I'm going to start with a personal example. The sermon certainly is not just about me, so don't think it is. I'm just starting with a personal example. On five different occasions on a Sunday morning after our morning worship service, my wife and I have found one of these little cards here tucked in either into our car door or tucked under the windshield of our red Honda Fit outside. Now, my wife usually drives the Honda, so she, on all occasions except for one, she has been the first that has encountered this. And therefore, she is the one who has to read the note. Now, these cards are used for record of attendance. These cards are used for you to express prayer requests that you'd like to pray about for, on your behalf the church. You can put a desire for membership, a desire to study some more. These cards are used for a lot of good purposes. None of that has been on these cards that have been left on our car. Instead, the cards are completely anonymous. 
They're in the same handwriting, so coming from the same individual, and they are complaints. They're directed toward me, they're directed toward my sermons. They are that my preaching is the reason that we don't have more people in attendance, or that my preaching is the sole reason why some families have left, or that my preaching is not gospel preaching. Now, I'm not going to spend this whole sermon defending my preaching. I don't think that I have to do that. I will say that I try to preach from the entirety of Scripture because, as I said in the opening statement from 2 Timothy 3 and on into chapter 4, all Scripture is inspired and all Scripture is profitable. It is all related to the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I firmly believe whether we're preaching from an Old Testament text or a New Testament text or a combination of both, whatever topic that we are talking about, if it's biblical, then it's important. If it's from the Gospels that tell us about the life of Jesus, yes, that's gospel. If it's about specifically the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, absolutely, that's gospel. But the gospel is interwoven through the epistles. The gospel is interwoven through the books of prophecy. The gospel is interwoven through the poetic books. The gospel is through the Psalms. You know, you read through there, those, there's so much gospel in the Psalms. There's so much gospel in the narratives that we read about of even people's failures and throughout the whole Bible. All of that is setting us up, giving us a little bit different look for appreciating the work of Jesus even more. So I firmly believe that the gospel is in every text of the Bible, every topic we preach on, and I try to connect every text, every topic, as we should, to the life and to the work, to the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and what God is doing through Jesus Christ and His ministry. Maybe our problem is that we don't understand how rich and how multifaceted the gospel really is. Maybe we've got a very narrow view of what gospel is. Now, I said last week that everyone needs to be willing to listen to correction or suggestions. We said that from the Proverbs. That's part of what, who we are. That's how we walk in wisdom, is being willing to accept. A, a wise man will accept reproof. I need that. You need that. We all need that. We need encouragement. We need to be corrected sometimes, as 2 Timothy chapter 4 says. You know, even preachers need that. Even elders need that at times. Bible addresses, there's times for that. Everyone has room for growth, preachers included. But there's at least two big problems with something like trying to offer criticism or correction, whatever you want to may call it, through something like a note tucked under a windshield without a name on it. Number one, if you don't clarify your terms, if you don't explain to me what you think is ungospel about my preaching, then how am I supposed to improve if I need to? Number two, if I don't know who is offering this criticism, which is a kind word for it, I would classify it as a complaint, then how am I supposed to get that clarification? How am I supposed to give an explanation? How are we supposed to talk it out or do whatever I can to make the situation better? You know what that shows me? It shows me that you don't want dialogue, you just want to complain. Now, did this situation prompt what I'm preaching on today? Yes. But it is by no means the only situation that has prompted me preaching on this today. 
You would be horrified by some of the stories you will hear from other preachers of what they've experienced from members of their congregation in the way that people have expressed their concerns, their complaints, their criticism, and the way that they have chosen to go about that. I had a preacher friend who walked out one day and had stuff written all over his vehicle in, in car marker, in, the, in marker, you know? How's that supposed to be helpful? How's that supposed to build up the body of Christ? But again, this is not just about preachers today. This is about all of us. There have been countless other situations here and in other places that I hear about that just show how far from the teachings of Jesus we really are in how we deal with our concerns in our disputes, in our disagreements, the ways that we've been offended. I've seen so much and so many cowardly methods that I think I've come to the conclusion that even though I've preached on Matthew 18 before, and I know Brother Stan stood up here while he was an elder and he preached on how we need to handle our disputes among Christians, and he was very carefully walking through this text and a bunch of other texts, I'm convinced that this is one of those texts that I need to preach a sermon from at least once a year. You know why? Because we still don't get it. Either too many of us don't know the protocol of Matthew 18, which we're going to talk about in detail, or... Too many of us know it, but choose to ignore it because another method is easier for us. We don't like face-to-face -face confrontation. So we choose something else that's more underhanded. And so much damage is done to the church by people ignoring Matthew 18. Raising accusations against people, whether they're founded or unfounded, but the way that, that, that they're handled... The way sometimes churches split over matters like this. The way sometimes people get out of the ministry or elders step down or people get out of, of it makes them want to leave the church sometimes. Let's talk about Matthew 18. Look at it closely with me. Here is your protocol from Jesus himself. If your brother sins, now that's the word that's used here. Now, if there is a particular something that you think is in the wrong, maybe you know it's in the wrong or maybe you think it's in the wrong. Maybe you think it could just something that could be improved. All of that is going to apply to this here. If you have a real concern with a brother, what do you do? Step one, listen to this carefully. Show him or her this is anyone who is a fellow Christian. Show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, there's our first condition, as a possible outcome. This is the most desirable outcome. And I'm convinced in most cases, it will be the outcome if we just stick to this first step. If he listens to you, if he acknowledges that there's something there to listen to, Maybe it's, it's not, you know, uh, fully something that, that is an actual problem. Maybe it's just a perceived problem. Maybe it is an actual problem. 
But either way, if he's willing to listen, you have won your brother. That's the first step that you should take in any situation where someone has offended you or whether you think they're guilty of a sin that you have observed and you're concerned about it or whether you think that something is amiss in their life, you have a concern about them. Go to the person in private. Step two, if he does not listen to you, here's your next step. It's still handled in private But this time it is handled with one or two people that you take along with you. They are called witnesses here because they are trusted Christians who may have also observed the same thing and have or share the same concern. And so you take one or two brothers or sisters and you go to that person in love and you want to sit down and have a conversation uh, with them. And it says here that it cites an Old Testament principle here. And that is that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Just so that person may know, this is not just one person who's raising this concern, but there are multiple people who have the same concern. Now that's something that needs to happen because a lot of times when you have one person who's raising a complaint about something, you know what they will often say? They will say that elders hear this all the time. People are saying that this needs to change in the church. People are saying... You know what, most of the time that it turns out those people who are saying that, what it boils down to, it boils down to you as the one who's saying that. We need to get specific. If there is a widespread problem, then take one or more after you have first gone yourself in private. Third, only after you have followed the first two steps of this protocol, And only if that person has not been responsive to your concern, has not shown any acknowledgement, has not shown any remorse, has not shown any desire to change, and if there is a real need to change, only then do you do the next step. And that is to tell it to the church. Now, the way this is handled It may be up for debate, depending on the congregation that you are in. I think if if you have a congregation that is shepherded by elders, this would be the point where you would bring that concern to the elders. And they say, "Let's, let's have a conversation with the elders about that. Our congregation right now, we don't have elders in place. It makes for a little bit more challenging situation of how you do this. I think that the wisdom of the rest of the scriptures would say, well, take it to some of the more mature members of the congregation and say we need to have a discussion about this. I think that that is the best way to handle that in a church that does not have an eldership in place. Either way, you are still not told to drag that person's name that you think is offended to to intentionally slander them and to do this in a spiteful way or to get this out in the open in some way that is going to bring harm to this person that is not the point of this fourth and there are very few situations that will actually need to that will actually lead, if you carefully follow steps one, two, and three, that will actually lead to a need for the fourth step here. And the fourth step is, if he refuses to listen to the church, 
then, in the words of Jesus, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. That is an expression of saying that he is no longer considered one of your brothers, one of your sisters. You have what I would call a 1 Corinthians 5 situation, if that is the case. We're not looking at 1 Corinthians 5 today, but that's another text you will want to read. If there is an actual matter of sin, and if there is someone who has been confronted about that sin, and yet that sin is ongoing and it's willful, and the person will not acknowledge that it is a problem, will not show any sign of repentance, then you reach a point where, as Paul would say, to remove the brother from your midst, where he's no longer considered a brother or sister. Now, if you read that text, it still doesn't say that you, you now hate this person, that you drag this person's name through the mud. No, you are still praying for this person. You are still loving this person. The whole point of that chapter is that you hand him over to the realm of Satan for a while so that he will miss the fellowship of the church and that he will want to be back a part of that. And hopefully, if he hits rock bottom to see the error of his ways, then there will be some real change. He'll have a wake up moment in his life and come back. That's the whole point of it. All of this should be done in love, no matter what steps are taken. Carefully, in love. Now, that's the protocol that Jesus gives us in this text. Now, if you even look at Matthew chapter 5, and you read verses 21 through 26 about if you're angry with your brother in your heart, that text is going to tell us that not even on situations where someone has offended you, but if you know that someone is holding, if you know that you have offended someone else, then you should be the one that goes to that person. Either way, you go to a brother in private. That's the first thing that you do. If you want to make the situation right, and since we as the ambassadors of Jesus Christ are supposed to be ministers of reconciliation, not only reconciling the world with Jesus Christ, but reconciling each other with each other, we are to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, is what Jesus tells us in the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5 then that's a mindset we've got to adopt. All this should be done in the name of being a peacemaker, being someone who, who truly loves our brothers and sisters enough to want to have the tightest fellowship and the, the best relationships that we can with each other. Being family is difficult, isn't it? It's a challenge, okay? There are going to be some things about, some things are just personality matters. Some things are just stylistic matters. And sometimes that's the case in someone's teaching or their preaching or, or just the way that they handle conversation. Uh, or, you know, the, some things are really just matters of opinion and just style, just, just personality. We've got to have some leeway there. <laughs> You're not going to be able to, to shape everyone in the church according to what you think their personality should be. That's not what we're in the business of. We're talking about actual real concerns here. That they need to be handled. They need to be handled carefully. Now here are some of the things that if you look at Matthew 18, here are some of the things that this teaching should prohibit. Some of the things that I have seen. Leaving an anonymous complaint note. That would be one of them. Immediately withdrawing fellowship from a brother or sister without even talking to them. Regarding them as a false teacher or false brother or whatever else without even trying to, to approach the person about whatever you see as amiss in their life. I've seen it handled that way too. I've seen people try to expose someone else immediately the, the on, online, social media, whatever else uh, in a public forum without following Matthew 18 protocol. Taking your complaint to friends 
wow, this one is tempting to us. Because the people that we are most comfortable talking to and the ones that we may think share some of the same concerns that we do, it's so easy just to go to them when, when sister so-and-so has been the one who has offended me, but I don't have the best relationship with sister so-and-so to begin with. Well, I'm going to go to, instead of talking, going straight to sister X, I'm going to go to sister Y and express my complaint about sister X. That's easier. I have more conversation with Sister Y. I have more in common. We can talk about that. And we might even involve Sister Z in this conversation, or Brother Z, and pretty soon we have started a rumor mill, whether it's founded or if it's unfounded. That is what the Bible calls slander, and it's a sin. Tanking your complaint to friends, slandering someone that you think is guilty, whether they're guilty or not. You're not following Matthew 18 when you do that. Calling someone out by name in a public way, in front of a bunch of people or on social media, this is also slander. Whether you think that person is in the wrong or not. You may say, well, preacher, aren't you doing that today? No, I'm calling out a particular behavior. I haven't mentioned any names because I don't know a name. I don't have that luxury in this case. What do we mean by private? When it says going to someone in private, what do we mean by that? I would really encourage you, I know this is difficult in our culture that is so digitally based now, and we are, we are getting so far away from just genuine face-to-face conversation. You know, you see two young people on a date sometimes. I say young people. You see two old people on a date sometimes and they're doing the same thing. And they're right across the table from each other and they're interacting on each other's posts on Facebook, on their phone. I really think what Jesus wanted us to do was if at all possible, the preference is to go and ask for a face-to-face conversation in a private setting with a brother or sister who you think you need to talk with. If that's not possible, if you can't meet in person right away, you feel something's an immediate concern, you need to handle it, I think the second best way in our world today with our technology would still be a phone conversation, not a text conversation, a phone conversation to where that person can at least hear your voice. Maybe it's a long-distance situation. Maybe that's the best way to handle it. Now, some of us may communicate better in writing. Some of us may be more comfortable with that. Paul called out some things in his letters. So the written word itself is not always... You know, a professor of mine did a study on this once, though. In the letters of Paul in particular, though, very infrequently does he call out Uh, someone by name, unless it's a blatant false teaching of someone who hasn't uh, repented to call him out by name in his written teachings. He's even concerned about people that, you know, 1 Corinthians 5, he doesn't even mention a name. He wants the church to be able to handle that without, you know, with as little exposure to that person's name out in the public as possible. There's a model right there for us. But if you're going to do something in print, I would suggest getting a well-thought letter 
or an email with your name attached. However, again, the preference is to have a face-to-face conversation in, in a private setting. Here's something else that we do. And this is part of what prompted this sermon as well. I know Scott and Stan dealt with it when they were serving as elders here. I know it's a big issue that elders deal with. One of the most frequent complaints that I hear, frustrations I should say, frustrations that I hear from shepherds in churches is people not following Matthew 18. Of taking their complaint about a fellow church member straight to the elders. Or maybe in a church without elders, sometimes it is to the preacher. Sometimes it's to someone else who they see as in a leadership position. Church members who skip these first two steps in the protocol, you know what that does? That just pushes the problem onto someone else. You think, okay, yes, shepherds are to be peacemakers. Yes, that is part of their their job. But they've got so much to shepherd. And anyone who's involved in the church has so much going on that they care about in relationships of people that they're involved with that no one person or two person or three person can we push off all of our disputes on and expect them to handle it all. It's wrong. It's not following Matthew 18. Have the guts. Have the courage. Pray about it. But have the courage to go to the person who has offended you. Don't go straight to the elders. Don't go straight to the preacher. Don't go straight to anyone else. We've got to talk to each other. I want you to come back to these last few verses of this text. I had our reading go all the way down through verse 20 because this is connected. Let me read this one more time for you. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three, there's our two or three again, there's part of our connection, back to taking witnesses with you, if that's what protocol calls for. Where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Now, I've been guilty of taking this scripture out of its context and just applying it to any worship situation. I certainly think the principle is there. Jesus is with us when we are gathered in his name. But look at what it's connected to specifically here. What is Jesus emphasizing here? First off, Jesus is delegating responsibility to his followers. He knows that he is not going to be bodily present in the same sense he was whenever he's teaching this. He's not going to be bodily present with them forever. Now, he's going to say at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the last thing he's going to say, the Gospel closes, I am with you always until the end of the age. And that's what we need to remember as part of what he's going to emphasize here. But he's not bodily present among us. We may audibly hear his voice applied to a specific dispute situation. But he is delegating, he's entrusting his followers. If they're truly following him and if they are are growing in the spirit of Christ, they should be able to, to handle disputes among themselves. 
They should be able to work out disputes among themselves. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, some of you are even taking disputes that you have with a brother to the secular law courts. You know, shouldn't you have enough maturity in Christ to be able to, to at least try to work this out? He puts tremendous responsibility on, on each of us here. But don't you, don't you take comfort in that? Don't you take, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that Jesus thinks enough of me and of you and of each of us that if we are truly following Him, if we're growing in Him, if we're walking with Him, that He entrusts us to be mature enough to be able to handle these situations. And here's the next thing that he's telling me from this text. When I am working through a dispute, whether someone's coming to me or whether I'm coming to someone else, I'm not alone. We're not alone. He is in our midst. He's with us. He's holding us up. We're reminded that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're together in this. It's not me against you. It's us together working through this. And if I feel a brother or sister is truly in the wrong about something, and I understand that Jesus is in our midst, you know what that's going to help me to do? It's going to help me to slow down. It's going to help me to, before I proceed with how I'm going to handle this, it's going to help me to ask the question, is this how Jesus would handle this? Because everything I do needs to be based on what He would do. He is in our midst. So whatever I do should be in step with what He would do. Do I have the courage of Jesus? Do I have the love of Jesus? Will I allow Him to be in our midst as we work through this? I love you all. I know you love me. I know you love Jesus. I know you love your fellow brothers and sisters in here. We've just still got a lot of room to grow. Let's do it together with Jesus in our midst. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for the relationships that we have in the body of Christ. For being able to come to you through prayer. For being able to love Jesus to be able to keep His commandments as we love Him, to be able to walk with Him. And as part of those commandments, Father, we pray that we will take this teaching from Matthew 18 seriously today. We pray that if there are those among us who have not followed this in the past or in the present, that we would see the changes that we need to make. If, if we are truly offended by something that a brother or sister has done, May we take the initiative today to seek out a way to talk with our brother and sister in love, in private, and help us to speak truth in love. May your Spirit guide us in this. May Jesus be in our midst. May we grow. We know that as family, Father, we are, we're not going to always see eye to eye. We're going to rub each other the wrong way. We're going to, to grind on each other sometimes in ways that really bother us. Father, we, we pray that you would make us peacemakers and bless us in that peacemaking. Help us. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, we're going to sing a song of encouragement. If this particular topic that we talked about today is something you want to make changes with in your life and you want the prayers of the congregation and how you handle situations like this going forward, uh, then let us know about that today. We'll receive you with open arms. We, we want to pray about that with you. We want all of us to be encouraged in how we go about correcting, exhorting each other in the body of Christ as we go forward. Today, if you're not sure if you're in Christ, uh, the, the gospel, as we have said, is that Jesus has come. The good news is that even though you have been separated from God, He has made it possible for you to be reconciled to God, for you to be in a relationship with God again, and it only happens in Jesus Christ. And we're only in Christ if we come to Him in faith, and if we come to Him with a repentant heart, and if we come to Him confessing, acknowledging that He is Lord. We want to make Him Lord of our lives. We want to say, you are the one who's risen from the dead. You have all authority on heaven and on earth, including authority over me. And all that comes together when we're baptized into Him. It's being joined with Him by faith in the working of God, dying with Him, rising with Him, walking in newness of life with Him. If you need that or anything else today, please come as together we stand and as we